Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I have an absolutely phenomenal interview for you this week. I'm joined by Dr. Michael Barber, a professor of scripture and theology at the Augustine Institute and author of the best-selling sold-out book on salvation called Salvation What Every Catholic Should Know. And, you know, in the course of this interview, Dr. Barber mentions that the first printing of this book has been sold out from Amazon, and you can tell why after listening to this interview. Dr. Barber is one of those guests that I was just dying to speak to on the podcast, somebody I thought would be great to articulate some Catholic ideas for our listeners, and I wasn't wrong. His book is sold out for a reason. Dr. Barber is so enthusiastic, so passionate, so excited about talking about our salvation, and so articulate as well. Just listen how he talks about the grace that underpins all of our works, and how we can do nothing apart from this grace that God gives us. And listen to how he talks about infant baptism being one of the clear indications that the Catholic Church doesn't believe that we have to work out, in quotes, our salvation, because infants, of course, can't work out anything. They can't even nap very well, as most of us know fairly well. So, anyway, this is one of those blessings, one of those amazing God moments, I think. You know, I began writing in 2014 about my Catholic conversion, my journey, as I was undertaking that journey, and I never imagined I'd have any real audience of readers. Never mind start a podcast years later and have people actually listening and even financially supporting the podcast. I really appreciate all of you and those especially that make this financially viable. It's not my full-time job and I work hard to track down guests who I think would speak well about Catholic topics and I was so excited to get Dr. Barber and I wasn't wrong at all. This is such a fantastic conversation. The funny thing is we had a lot of problems getting it off the ground. First, Skype wouldn't work, and then Facebook Messenger wouldn't work, and finally I had to call him up at the university on the old-fashioned telephone line. So the quality on his end is a bit diminished, but I don't think it diminishes the conversation at all. It's a fantastic conversation. I'll say it again one last time. Dr. Barber was an absolute pleasure to talk to, and I feel so blessed by God and by you, my listeners and supporters, to be able to have these conversations. It's so exciting to sit down on the other end of a phone line and have an incredible conversation about these great big topics like salvation and what the Catholic Church really believes about it with somebody who articulates it so well. I think you're going to love this conversation. So without any further ado, please listen and enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm here this week with Dr. Michael Barber. Uh, Dr. Barber is an associate professor of scripture and theology at the Augustine Institute. He has an MA in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville, a PhD in scripture from Fuller Theological Seminary, and he is the author of Salvation, What Every Catholic Should Know. Hello, Dr. Barber. Hello, Keith, and please, it's just Michael. Thanks for having me on. Michael, no problem. Hey, I'm exceptionally excited to have you on the podcast, not only because it took a lot of effort to get this connection working, but <laughs> also because you've written a fantastic book, and I've heard you a few times now, and you are such an exceptionally excited and passionate uh, Catholic voice. So I'm really excited that you've been able to join me. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for those kind words. If this stuff doesn't get you excited, you know, you better check your pulse, though. <laughs> hey, my thoughts exactly. Okay, so our podcast is, uh, this podcast is for non-Catholics, new Catholics, Catholics who want to dig deeper into their faith. And one of the most common misconceptions about Catholicism that you hear almost everywhere, it's almost a, a, a Catholic trope, is the idea that we have a works-based 
faith. Uh, in other words, that Catholics need to work out, in quotations, their salvation by doing stuff, in quotations, mm-hmm. to, to please God. Um, how does the Catholic Church actually understand our salvation? And is this anywhere close to the truth? Yeah, those are great questions. I mean, people ask you the, these kinds of straw man questions from time to time. Well, you know, if you think that you're saved by your works, you know, how many good works do you have to do to be saved, right? And they'll, they'll come up with these sort of off-the-wall questions. A lot of times, I think Catholics aren't really ready to respond to, and I think part of the reason for that is we Catholics, we don't really think much about salvation itself, Right. Uh, when I told a friend of mine that I was writing this book on salvation, he said, why don't you just call it How to Get to Heaven? And it was like, no, that is exactly the the, the problem right here, is that we, we, we don't think about the big picture of what salvation is. And dare I say, many Christians, not just Catholics, I think have a sort of truncated view of of salvation. Just this weekend, I was at a party, and there were some non-Catholic friends of mine at the party, and uh, they had seen the book. They were excited to read the book. And uh, I was quite pleased by that. The book is Salvation, What Every Catholic Should Know. I didn't pick the subtitle. It's part of a new series that the Augustine Institute is doing, the What Every Catholic Should Know series. We're going to have books on God and music. And, and the next one is on literature. And it's a great series, but I want non-Catholics to be able to read the book, too. So I, I went out and I got some non-Catholic scholars to blurb the book on the back, some really great scholars who I've learned a lot from. Uh, but, you know, just to sort of make it clear that I, I, I hope everybody can take something away from this book. And I, as I was talking to my non-Catholic friends at the party, I was telling them this, and, you know, I highlighted the fact that, well, even non-Catholic Christians, believe it or not, even though salvation is talked much about in non-Catholic Christian churches, don't really think about salvation. So that very question that you might get, well, how many good works do you have to do to be saved? You know, well, what do you mean by being saved? That, that, that's a really important question. Do you think being saved is just fire insurance? Is salvation just getting out of hell? Because when you, when you put the question in those terms, I think that's the way people are thinking of salvation. Well, how many good works do you have to do to just get out of hell and get into heaven? Well, if you think that's what salvation is, you're not reading the same New Testament that I am. Because in the New Testament, salvation is about so much more than getting out of damnation. Salvation is about becoming conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 makes this very clear, right? So salvation it has to be properly construed first. All right. Now, is this true that we're saved by grace, that we're saved not by virtue, first in, in terms of what we do, but of God's gift to us? Well, yes, that is, that is very clearly taught uh, by St. Paul in the New Testament. And as Catholics, we affirm that the New Testament is inspired. We recognize that the New Testament is divine revelation. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, By grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. And that is affirmed by Catholic teaching that's affirmed at the Council of Trent. That's also firm, affirmed. Some people will say, well, that sounds like, you know, newfangled Catholic teaching. No, that's at the Council of Trent. And it's been reaffirmed in the Catechism of the Catholic Church as well. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 2010, says that the initiative, since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. And you see this very beautifully illustrated in the Catholic practice of infant baptism. You know, it's, it's so funny to me that infant baptism is controversial. Uh, because, you know, it's oftentimes my non-Catholic Christian friends, who I have many of, and, and who they're the ones that raise the question about whether children should be baptized. They say, well, you really have to make your decision for yourself. You have to make this act on your own. And I say, well, wait a minute, aren't you the ones telling me that I'm not saved by what I do, that is first by God's gift, right? I mean, it, it's so funny. That is illustrated in the Catholic practice of infant baptism in a certain way. Certainly the parents supply the faith. The sacrament is a sacrament of faith, and we could talk more about that at some other time. But the basic idea is I didn't baptize my son, Michael Jr., my firstborn, 
or my most recent son. We have six. I didn't baptize Simon Peter uh, after he slept through the night a few times. You know, <laughs> all right, now he's not a pagan. Now he's being good to his parents. All right, now that you've done this good work, now you've earned baptism. No. He was a pagan when he got baptized, right? They were all pagans. We were all pagans when we got baptized. You can't baptize yourself. It's a really amazing fact of baptism. And, and so the point of baptism, and instant baptism in particular, is to underscore this idea. Salvation is not based on, first and foremost, the gift of salvation is not given to us by virtue of what we do. As the Catechism says, Catechism 2010, since the initiative belongs to God, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification. So you don't have to convince God to love you. This is so important because I think a lot of people imagine God as some kind of authoritarian figure who's up in heaven with his arms folded, you know, and he's waiting to be impressed by us. Uh, I remember I was teaching under, uh, um, undergraduates uh, at my previous institution. And I had a student come in, and she had a question about one of my classes. And I thought she was going to ask me about the paper requirement or something like that. No, she, she had a problem. Uh, with. She said, I'm not buying what you're selling. And I said, well, what's that? She said, this idea that God loves me. She said, I've done a lot of terrible things. I don't think God loves me anymore. We don't get along too well. And I, I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, I've committed all these sins. I don't see how God could still love me. I mean, this is something we have to underscore as Catholics, that we don't do anything to earn God's love. We don't do anything to convince God that we are worthy. Christ dies for us while we are unworthy. So important, because so, I think so many people stay away from church because they recognize sin in their life. They know they're unworthy, and so they think, well, God doesn't love me anymore. No. God's gift of salvation is first given to us in baptism— uh, as we see in the New Testament, baptism is linked to salvation. For example, in First Peter, baptism now saves you, Peter says, uh, in First Peter chapter 3. We, we see very clearly that we don't need to become worthy to receive God's grace. But Catechism number 2010 goes on to say, I'm quoting here from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the official compendium of everything we believe as Catholics. This isn't Michael Barber's private interpretation of Catholic teaching. This is promulgated by Pope St. John Paul II and put together with, you know, Cardinal Ratzinger became Pope Benedict XVI in agreement with all the bishops around the world. Catechism 2010 goes on to say, moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. So God gives us salvation as a gift, but once we're given that gift, and what is that gift? It's important to talk about that. The gift is not just some stuff. It's not like some, you know, injection that Captain America gets, and all of a sudden you're, you know, super strong. No, the, the gift is Christ, and God gives us his Son Christ is in us. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And so my works are no longer just my works, but my good works are done by Christ in me, working through me. And so my works have meritorious, they have redemptive value. Why? Because they're Christ's works. If I'm going to say that the good works the believer in Christ does don't have redemptive value, then I'm going to have to say Christ's work doesn't have redemptive value. Because as Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work within you, Philippians 2.12. So yes, it's a gift, but then that gift, which is nothing less than the life of Christ himself in us, right, and the Father and the Holy Spirit as well, indwelling of the divine persons, because they are within us, we are able to do, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. <laughs> so, kind of a long answer, but there you go. No, no, this is not disappointing in the in the least. I am. Oh, this is fantastic. You know. So the catechism, catechism number twenty eleven, the next paragraph says the charity of Christ is the source in us of all of our merits before God. Grace by uniting us to Christ in active love ensures the supernatural quality of our acts. So our our, our works are now supernatural because it's Christ who lives within me. And consequently, goes on to say, their merit before God and before men. Of course, 
our works have merit, are, have redemptive value, because they're not my works. They're, they're not just my works. I mean, they are mine, but I'm cooperating with Christ who's working in me. If the works are not redemptive, then Christ's work isn't redemptive. And the Catechism goes on to say then, the saints have always had a lively awareness that their merits were pure grace. And then it quotes St. Therese of Lisieux, one of my favorite quotations. After Earth's exile, I hope to go and enjoy in the fatherland. Enjoy you, God, in the fatherland. But I do not want to lay up merits for heaven. I want to work for your love alone. In the evening of this life, I shall be, appear before you with empty hands. For I do not ask you, Lord, to count my works. All our justice is blemished in your eyes. I wish then to be clothed in your own justice and to receive from your love the eternal possession of yourself. That's, that's Catholic teaching right there. Salvation is a gift. That, you know, we could talk more about it, but it's a great uh, Anglican New Testament scholar. He's doing really important work these days. I talk about him in, in, in the New Salvation book. Uh, and he's showing that in the New Testament, Paul talks about how we're saved by grace. And that word grace is charis in Greek, charis in, Greece, in Greek. And that was a common word in ancient Greek, in ancient Greek writings. It wasn't necessarily a religious term. It wasn't used in religious context purely. It was a, an everyday term. The word charis, the word that's translated grace, means gift. That's the idea. God gives us his salvation. Right? But in the ancient world, Barclay shows that when you gave someone a gift, the gift was meant to enable them to give back. Hmm. Right? And that's what God's gift is for us. He gives us Christ. The Father gives us Christ. Christ comes to us for what purpose? So that we can become like him. That's why grace is so amazing. I mean, if Catholics are wrong about grace, if on the last day I stand before Christ and he says, oh, you got it wrong, I'll say, I'm sorry, I just gave grace too much credit. I thought grace was too amazing. I thought it was capable of making my works meritorious because you were working in me. Right? And I don't think I'm going to have to say that. I'm confident that that's actually what the New Testament teaches. <laughs> so, okay, so I, I want to come back around to this idea of the, of the works that we, that we do yeah. and how that uh, works in our salvation. But I, I do want to just kind of pause and take a step back. And, and I have my own theories about this. I was a non-denominational evangelical before I became Catholic. I had a conversion mm -hmm. experience. So I've kind of seen the, the other side as it were. And I have some theories. But I want to know what you think about why do Catholics get this rap um, this bad rap as this religion that, that makes you have to do stuff to be saved. Do you know where that comes from? Yeah, because a lot of Catholics get it wrong and, and, and think that. <laughs> that that's why, I mean, like, they actually do think that. And you can say, well, the official church documents don't say that, and that's true. But by and large, a lot of Catholics do believe that what the goal is in life is to get to heaven, and I get to heaven by, you know, being a nice person and by doing good things. And, I mean, there is a partial truth there. But, well, well, I mean, this is, this is so wrong. I mean, how many times have, have you heard from the, from the pulpit the, the priest talk about the fact that what we are called to in Christ is not humanly possible? That we really need to get that, right? Because uh, I think a lot of times we, we downplay just how amazing our vocation is in Christ, as, as, as the Catechism says here. Our acts are to have a supernatural quality. I mean, that's, that's, that's really remarkable. Think of the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus, what, what must I do to be saved? Right? What, what does Jesus say? Well, he says, you don't have to do anything to be saved. Just have faith. No, he actually doesn't say that. <laughs> right? He tells him to keep the commandments, and, and then he says, well, I've done all these. And Jesus says, well, then... If you want to be perfect, then give all that you have. Sell it, you know. Sell all that you have. To, sell all you have to the poor, or sell all that you have. Give the money to the poor, and come follow me. And and the, then the man walks away sad. It says in Mark's gospel. And uh, you know the disciples hear this, and what do they say to Jesus? They say, "Well, Jesus, um, who can be saved?" And Jesus says to them something that's really important. He says, with men, this is impossible. 
But with God, all things are possible. Mark 10, 27. You know, and a lot of people want to kind of accommodate the Catholic teaching today. They say, you know, well, you know, it's kind of unrealistic. You know, the Church is teaching about marriage, about sexuality. You know, the Gospel, it's just... It's just a little unrealistic these days, right? You know, what we really need is, you know, sort of rethink Catholic teaching, make it make it more realistic, more possible. Well, I mean, here's the thing: if you think salvation is hard, if you think salvation is difficult, cheer up! It's worse than you think. Right? <laughs> Jesus says it's impossible. And, you know, we don't think about that enough, I think. If you, I mean, this is a remarkable statement. The Catechism, Catechism has another really interesting section on marriage. Catechism 1642 talks about marriage, and it says that spouses are to, quote, love one another with supernatural, tender, and fruitful love. Now, I get that. Tender love. I, I'm to owe, I, I owe my wife, by virtue of our marriage, tender love. I owe my wife fruitful love. But supernatural. She, she is owed. My wife, by virtue of our wedding, is owed from me supernatural love. I need to love my wife in a way that is beyond my nature. Did you catch that? I mean, that's a remarkable statement in the Catechism. Hmm. I don't think we, we, we dwell on this enough. We're, we're not just called to stay together and not get a divorce. That's not, that's not Catholic teaching. Catholic teaching isn't, oh, here's your vocation, now you're, you're stuck together. No. You know, people use this terrible language of the old ball and chain or something like that. It's <laughs> awful. It's awful. Because what we're called to in marriage is to love one another as Christ loves the Church. That's what Ephesians 5 says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I could be like the apostles and look at Jesus and say, well, then who can be saved? <laughs> then this marriage isn't going to work out. Because you're saying that the only thing that, that is going to satisfy this vocation is for me to love as Christ loved? I have to love with the supernatural love? Yes. And the reason that Christ can give us that standard is because he gives us grace. He gives us himself, he gives us his life, so that we can do what we would never be able to do by virtue of our own humanity. But the problem is that a lot of Catholics don't really fully appreciate this, or we want to downplay it and say, oh, well, you know, it's not that hard. I heard a homily once where the deacon basically said, you know, Catholics, it's not that hard. Just do some nice things for people. Go out of your way to be kind. This is what Christ is calling us to. No, that's not what Christ is calling us to. Christ is calling us to become like him. And we can't downplay that. That's impossible, right? But with his grace, all things are possible. He gives us his grace so that we can attain that amazing lofty ideal. Or it's not just an ideal. I mean, Sermon on the Mount. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, Jesus must be talking in hyperbole. He's not talking about hyperbole. He means it, right? And the reason he can mean it is because he is going to dwell within us. He's going to give us the Spirit to empower us to do these things. And if we really believe that, if we really believe that what we were called into was physically impossible, humanly impossible on our own resources, then we would spend time every day in prayer. And we would stay very close to the sacraments, right? Because we'd recognize what Jesus says in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can only do a few good things. No, that's not what he says. Apart from me, you can do nothing, right? But if you can go through a whole day without spending, you know, significant time in prayer, and I don't mean just, you know, say grace before meals or you know, say Hail Mary between innings of a baseball game or something like that. I mean, if, if you can go through the whole day without spending serious time in prayer, or if you can make it to receive the sacraments, but, but you decide not to, right? Then what you're telling God is, I didn't really need your help today. I got it covered. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to fail. You're going to fail, right? Because it really is impossible what we're called to, but it's not possible with God's help. If we really believe that, we'd be asking him for his help every day. We'd be spending, as the saints recommend, 
30 minutes a day in prayer, bare minimum, right? I mean, we need that time uh, in prayer and, and, and receiving the sacraments. And, you know, people say, well, I don't have time for that. We have time for our favorite television show. We have time for all kinds of things, right? We've we got to make time for these things. Otherwise, we're not, we're not recognizing what it is we're called to. I, I think what you're underscoring here is this is powerful stuff, you know, and I think this this book is incredibly timely and your message is incredibly important to hear um, th- that grace is is central. Right. And how often we forget that and don't hear that. So I want to say this as a as a non-denominational evangelical, I understood. So I said a prayer and I was saved and I was saved to do fantastic things. Like, I mean, I was a very, uh, I was a very zealous Christian. I read my Bible. I prayed. I did what we'd call the works of mercy. I, I was involved in my youth group and missions work and all this stuff. So I think I was living out my faith. Um, I didn't understand that the same way that the Catholic Church understands that. Um, so we're, we're saved, quote unquote, and then we're performing these works through the grace of Christ, as you really importantly underscore, um, how do we understand the idea of kind of sanctification or how, um, I guess what the Catholic Church would say is, how are those works affecting me and moving me closer to becoming Christ-like? Can you kind of un- yeah, so, unpack so let's, that? Let's, let's, yeah, let, let's, uh, let's first by, uh, start with saying this. So salvation is not just a moment. It's really important, right? Because in a lot of non-Catholic Christian contexts, the way the gospel is explained is, well, you say this prayer, and now that's it, you're saved, right? And make no mistake about it, there is, there is lots of evidence in the New Testament uh, that supports the idea that salvation is found in a moment, in our lifetime, Right? We have been saved. You find that in various places in the New Testament. Again, First Peter or Paul will link that moment of being saved to baptism, right? So, if someone were to ask me, "Are you saved?" I could say, "Well, yeah, I was saved in my baptism," right? So I, that would be totally that would be a completely biblical answer. It would be an incomplete biblical answer. It would be totally biblical, but it would be an incomplete account of what the Bible says, though, because not only does the New Testament talk about the fact that we have been saved, it also talks about, for example, in 1 Corinthians 1, that we are being saved. And then later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about how we will be saved. So there's a, a, a Protestant scholar, Alan Stanley. He wrote a book called Salvation is More Complicated Than You Think. Right, and he's writing it for his non-Catholic audience in in particular to explain that look, salvation isn't just the you know saying the sinner's prayer, because what is salvation? Again, salvation cannot be just getting out of hell. It's not just as I like to say, fire insurance. Right? <laughs> if that's what you think of salvation, you're not reading the New Testament carefully enough, because salvation is not just getting out of hell. It's about becoming like Christ. It's about entering into the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First John talks about that. We have communion. Some translations have fellowship. I hate that word, fellowship. But it's just like, what is that? You know, it's what, when, <laughs> if you have a youth group meeting and you want to make it sound really great, you know, we're going to have pizza and fellowship. What is that? You're, we're going to watch Star Wars. You know. <laughs> Fellowship this is a bad word. Communion's better, right? The, way it, the, it's, the Greek word is koinonia. It's translated fellowship sometimes. Better translation would be communion. We are brought into union with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We share in their life of love. And that happens in the future. Yes, right? When we die, for example, right? That, or if Jesus returns before we die, right? But Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour, so we can never be sure when that might be. When he when he will return, but we but we know that salvation even happens now in our lifetime. Right, right. It's the sacrament of baptism. We'll receive the Spirit, right? But why would Paul talk about we have been saved, we're being saved, we hope to be saved? All right, because salvation is being conformed to the image of the Son. Romans eight twenty nine. What are we called to be? We are called to be, as First John says, the children of God. 
John's gospel, right? Why did Christ come? That we could have the power to be the children of God. That's remarkable. We could, we can be sons and daughters in the Son of God. So Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and we are united to God through him. So I share in Christ's relationship with the Father, right? I have a participation in his sonship, right? And what do sons do? They grow up. And so salvation is about maturity. It's not just about getting out of hell. It's about becoming more like Christ. Now, non-Catholic Christians, you know, distinguish between justification. There's like a moment that happens. You're declared righteous by God. And then sanctification. Not all non-Catholics. Some non-Catholics, right? There are so many different non-Catholic Christians. You can't speak for all non-Catholic Christians here, <laughs> all right? But, but, but they'll often make that distinction. For Catholics, it doesn't work that way. Salvation is justification and sanctification, and both relate to becoming sons in the Son, becoming daughters in the Son. And so we're going to have to grow up. And that's an essential part of salvation. Salvation is... So this is why purgatory is so important to us, right? Well, why is purgatory so important, Keith? You know, well, purgatory, you know... Is, is, gotta affirm this doctrine, you know, and non-Catholic Christians say, what is this, a second chance, you know, to get out of free card, get out of jail free card? What is this? Corruption of the gospel. No, it's it's not. The reason we believe in purgatory, right, if, and, and this is, by the way, a big point in my book, I should just say this, is that if you get any key aspect of salvation wrong, if you misunderstand it, it's not just about, like, Catholic trivia. This isn't about like just getting your doctrine right so you can pass the right you know, orthodoxy test. No, if you get it wrong on these matters, it will seriously corrupt your spiritual life. So if you think salvation is just getting out of hell, right, then your understanding of salvation is I just have to avoid mortal sin. And you know what? You're going to fail at that. Because it's not about just coming to the edge of the precipice of hell and damnation and then patting yourself on the back for not falling off, right? Because that, that little pat may be all that it needs to knock you over the edge, right? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the reality is that salvation is not just getting out of hell. Salvation is being saved from being unchristlike. That's what we need, right? And it, by the way, everybody in our culture gets this. Like, even if they're not Christian, they know that what Jesus says is true. Jesus says in the gospel, he who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will save it. We all know that's true. We, we see it every season, every Christmas season. We see it on display in the famous Charles Dickens story, The Christmas Carol. Whenever they do a television show, if you've read the book, everybody knows, if you read Charles Dickens' novel, right, or a little story, it begins with, with, with Scrooge, right, who is, quote-unquote, a hardened sinner. <laughs> yeah, right? one of my favorites. Yeah, and what happens to him? He be, he was, he's miserable. He's a miserable miser. Because that's what sin does. Sin makes us miserable. Right? Because we're not living life the way God intended us to. And everybody in our culture knows that if you give to others, it's fulfilling. People find fulfillment in being generous and giving of themselves to other people. We don't always do that, but we know that that's how human nature works. Why? Well, because we're made, we're called to enter into the life of love, which is the divine trinity. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the love that they share is the Holy Spirit. That's what we're made for. So sin is basically a real simple definition of sin is selfishness, right? Sin is anything that is an obstacle to entering into that life of love. And so we're called to become like Christ. We're called to become self-giving lovers, life-giving lovers. Well, that's what all the Catholic Church's teaching all makes sense. Contraception, all the controversial teachings, at the end of the day, all boil down to, are we willing to learn to love in a way that's unselfish? Contraception is, you know, um, obviously a problem. Why does the Catholic Church see it as a problem? Well, because when you practice artificial contraception, you're turning the sexual act into something that's only done for pleasure. And when that happens, right, it's, it's very hard to know, do I love this other person or do I just love the way they make me feel? Hmm. Right? 
But if you understand that what we're called to is life-giving love like Christ, who shows us what it means to love by giving his life on the cross, right, we find fulfillment in becoming like him. So why is purgatory so important? Purgatory is important because it maintains that we have to become perfect to enter into God's life of love. What, what is it that we're called to enter into? Life-giving love. What is it that we have to learn? Life-giving love. That's hard. That's painful. That hurts, right? And if we don't affirm purgatory, then we're saying, oh, well, salvation is just getting out of hell. Right? And you go to every funeral, and you go to a funeral for, you know, whoever it is, and they're all canonized, right? Oh, he's already in heaven. We already know. How do you know? <laughs> I, I knew this guy. He, he wasn't a perfect saint when he died, right? There, if, if, we get to, if we're going to end up with our Lord in heaven, then we need to become fully like him. And we become fully like him by learning life-giving love. And we find in Scripture that suffering is that way that, that love is purified. It's really easy to say, I love you, in the backseat of a car. Right? That's, that's easy. But you say, I love you in good times and bad, in sickness and in health. Right? It, it, it's, it's those trials, it's those difficulties where love is 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 tested, is refined, and is perfected, right? So this is why purgatory is such an important part of, of Catholic teaching. Anyway, sorry, another <laughs> long answer to your question. <laughs> no, this is fantastic. Wow, this is just, this is great stuff, you know. And that was something for me that I had difficulty understanding in my evangelical view of salvation. I mean, when N.T. Wright came out with his a kind of new idea of salvation and the kingdom salvation, which I think is kind of what very similar to what you're you're talking about. We're saved for now, not just for later. That that made yeah, some but more... I do have some real problems with N.T. Wright too. So I don't want to just sound like I'm the cribbing from okay, N.T. Wright okay. here. No, no. I mean, right, Tom has some really good ideas, and then I think he has some really bad ideas too. So fair anyway. enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I, I I think what I'm what I'm trying to say is I never understood the idea of uh, I said a prayer and I was saved, and I had to try and do good things um, through Christ's grace as I understood it, but. It, you know, there was no kind of uh, becoming like Christ, where the Catholic Church introduces that really important distinction that we're trying to, um, as you said, trying to become more like Christ, trying to learn how to practice that self-giving love. And then purgatory becomes important because if we have not become absolutely ready to meet God and to be in that love, we don't just suddenly die. And then, I mean, this is what I believe as, as an evangelical, I, I could somehow be as I am today, which is far from, from perfect, even with, mm -hmm. even with God's help. And then I could die. And then tomorrow I'm somehow ready to, to be face to face in this communion with God. That, that never made sense to me. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. But, I mean, even C.S. Lewis said that, right? Yes. C.S. Lewis affirmed purgatory. <laughs> yeah. Because it, and look, let me be fair. Look, I, I've learned a lot from, from Tom Wright, and I, I think there's much to um, – I, I, I'm grateful uh, to him for a lot of things. And one of the things he emphasizes is the importance of salvation in the here and now. And I think that's absolutely right. Well, one of the things I don't like, just to give a for instance, is in his book, Surprised by Hope, he makes it sound like, oh, in ancient Judaism, there was just no, no idea that, you know, you would go to heaven. You know, this is kind of foreign to the New Testament eschatology, going to heaven is, you know. No, that, I mean, Paul talks about how he wants to depart to be with Christ. And if you read ancient Jew, Jewish sources, you know, like First Enoch, we hear about the spirits of those who have died, who exist in, a, in another place, you know. And so and this is like, whoa, okay, this is where I, I, I might... Uh, this is where I part ways, right? But yeah, both of these things need to be emphasized. On the one hand, salvation isn't just a futuristic reality, because we already enjoy communion with Christ now, and we're called to become like Christ in this life, and the saints show us that it can be done by God's grace, right? On the other hand, we also recognize that we're called to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And people who say, oh, that's just an exaggeration, that's just hyperbole, go to Matthew 19, right? Or Mark 10 later on, where Jesus says, if you wish to be perfect, right, to the rich young man, and then the disciples say, well, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. He's not talking hyperbolically here. He means that if we want to be saved, we have to truly become perfect. 
like the Father. We have to become God-like, right? And well, you see, That's an impossible standard. I know. That's why God gives us his grace to help us. And the saints show us, for example, like Mother Teresa, who is universally admired and respected, right? Look at Look at, you know, people talk about the miracles to get all excited when you know, a new saint is canonized. And look at this miracle, you know, this person was healed of Alzheimer's. Or, and it happens, and it's amazing. The Catholic Church's canonization process is shockingly rigorous, and you have to get outside medical, you know, uh, personnel to uh, affirm that there's no natural explanation for what had happened. It's Craig Keener, who's a non-Catholic Christian scholar talks about this in an amazing two-volume work he has on miracles. But, but the real miracle, let's make no mistake about it, is that there was a Mother Teresa, right? That, that, there, that there are people who can live as such luminous examples of Christ in the world. And in an age when there are so many scandals and so many um, people, you know, we hear so many stories of the downfall of public officials. So often we can despair that this is possible by God's grace. We think every, everything must be an act. Everything must be a, a show. No, we know that with God's grace, all these things are possible. <laughs> this is, oh, thanks for this. This is great. I, I want to ask you, I think, one more thing here. And I don't know, this is, I guess, the flip side of salvation. Are, how, are, how are Catholics to understand the idea of hell? I mean, to, to quote C.S. Lewis again, I know not a Catholic, but a good picture of, of purgatory, I think, um, would, would say something like hell is locked from the inside. So, right, C.S. Lewis. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I, I, I love that quotation. So how should Catholics understand the flip side of salvation? Um, I guess, how should, how should Catholics think about hell, I guess is my question. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of people who don't want to uh, talk about hell and I'm one of them. <laughs> I don't like hell. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's horrible. And some people, of course, looking at passages in the New Testament that talk about God's will that all people be saved, have, have said, well, maybe you know, there, there won't actually be anyone in hell on the last day. I, I don't think that's consistent with Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels. He makes it very clear that on the last day there will be, not that there might be, there will be people who, he will, who will hear the words, depart from me. And so, I mean, it's a sobering truth that we find in the New Testament. It's recently been affirmed by Pope Francis when he was talking to the he, – he gave an address, and he addressed the mafia. And he, and he basically <laughs> said, it's not too late. You know, he says, if you, if you don't change – I forget the exact quote, uh, but he says, if, if you don't change, you know, how awaits you, right? Here's the quote. He says, convert, there is still time so that you don't end up in hell. That is what awaits you if you continue on this path. Even Pope Francis, right? Yeah, taking down very the clear mafia. <laughs> about that. Yeah. So, so what happens? How do we understand this? How can a loving God, if God loves us so much and He wants us to be saved, well, the long you know, can't give a long answer. It's too much to get into here. But the simple answer is God respects our choices. To what is it to be saved? It's to become like Christ. It's to love like Christ, to become a lover like Christ. And love can't be programmed. It's got to be freely given. It's got to be given of your own volition. And so God isn't going to force anyone to become like Christ. You can choose to say no to him. You can choose to reject him. And I think a lot of people have a hard time believing in hell because they actually don't really re- they don't really believe that God will respect our choices. <laughs> uh, God will really allow our allow us to take ourselves there. And people say, "Well, who would choose such a thing? Who would who would ever you know act in such a way? No one would actually choose." What are you talking about? Look all around you. People make all kinds of decisions that they know are bad for them. They know they're self destructive, and they do it anyway. And uh, you know, Jeremiah talks about the human heart being. A mystery. Who can understand it? <laughs> I, I certainly can't. But the reality is the New Testament makes it very clear that God wants us to enter into his life of love, but that's not something that he's going to force upon us. He, uh, he is going to respect our choices that we make. Yeah, well. And at the end of the day, the reason hell is so painful, I think, 
for people who are there is because God doesn't stop loving the people in hell. God still loves the people in hell. The problem isn't that God stopped loving them. The, 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 the reason people are in hell is because people who are there said, I don't want to love. I don't want to be loved. I just want to be left alone. <laughs> that is, and and God, yeah. God respects that. Yeah. God will respect that. It's a horrifying thought. It's a horrifying thought. And, and I can't fully understand it. I can't fully explain it. But it's very clearly the teaching of Scripture. It's been the teaching of the tradition, and it's affirmed by the Church today. Yeah. Well, hey, I think you've done an incredible job of, um, at least in my mind, and I think, I think I'll have listeners agree, absolutely, unpacking what the Catholic Church actually teaches about salvation and how to understand that. And I think certainly uh, dispelling some of these misconceptions of this idea that we have to, quote-unquote, work for our salvation or what those works mean. I mean, the the underscoring um, that you're doing here and, and in your book of the idea that it's just, it's just, it's Christ working through these works. And that's why these works right. are and, so and, and we are truly working, right? I mean, yeah. uh, there are not many non-Catholic Christians that say, oh, I don't like this idea of synergism. And what they mean by synergism is you know, working with God. They say it's not like you know God does 50% of the work and we do 50% of the work, or God does 80% of the work and I do 20% of the work. You know, God does all the work, they'll say. And I'll say. Amen, God does all the work. But part of that work involves changing our hearts and transforming us into, into to, to agents, right? To, it's transforming us into agents of a new creation. Right, that we we are acting with Christ. We are His co-workers, and Paul himself uses that language of sin or geo, of working with Christ in Philippians two. Work out your salvation, he says. We are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but we don't do it because you know we can earn God's gift. No, God gives us His gift in in Christ, and then we are transformed so that we can do good works that are truly our works, but they're also the result of Christ working within us and only possible because Christ is working within us. So work out your salvation in fear and trembling for God is at work within you. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So important. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Hey, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I absolutely love your enthusiasm. It's a fantastic <laughs> book. Where, where can people find out more about this, this book, about what you're up to? Okay. Thank you very much. Well, uh, they can find the book on Amazon if they want to get it there. Um, now, the book's been doing better than any of us expected. It's uh, As of now, it's the number one book in Catholic theology on Amazon.com. And so they weren't really expecting that success. So I think they, they sold out of copies on Amazon really quickly. <laughs> uh, so you can order it on Amazon. It might be ready to go. They've already gone through the first printing. So I think they were waiting for the second printing to come out. Uh, but you can also order it at everycatholic.org. Everycatholic.org uh, with the Augustine Institute uh, has a, um, a link there. It's, the book is published, co-published with the Augustine Institute and Ignatius Press. So um, you can also go to Ignatius Press and order it there too. So yeah, that, that's how you get the book. If you want to learn more about my work, um, I've written some other things, and if you're interested in learning more about future things, we've got a new book coming out August 1st on St. Paul. Um, that's more of an academic book. This book on salvation sort of distills that. And that book on Paul I co-wrote with Brant Petrie, who wrote the foreword to the Salvation book. And, um, and I co-wrote the Paul book also with John Kincaid, uh, who's a brilliant Catholic Pauline scholar, one of the, the – certainly the, the best Pauline scholar – uh, that I know in the Catholic world right now. So anyway, yeah, those those two guys, Brand Petrie, John Kincaid, and myself. If you want to learn more, you can follow me on Twitter, Michael P. Barber, I guess, would be a way to get information, or I'm on Facebook, and uh, also on the web at thesacredpage.com. Yeah, and some great stuff uh, you've written and done there as well. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I work on that website also with Brand Petrie and uh, John Kincaid and an Old Testament scholar named John Bergsma. We all write for the sacredpage.com. That sounds great. And I have Brant Petrie coming up on the show uh, in a few weeks, which will be fantastic. Looking forward to that, too. Well, that is fantastic, yeah. Uh, Brant is my 
best friend, John Kincaid and Brant Petrie, the two best friends after my wife on planet Earth. <laughs> and so you're going you're gonna to have a wonderful show. Whatever you talk about, I'm sure it will go very, very well. I imagine you're talking about Mary. Oh, we are. The other great misconception uh, that <laughs> I had and that a lot of my non-Catholic friends and family and, uh, and colleagues have had too. So yeah, that'll be great. Very good. Very good. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Keith. Okay. God bless. God bless. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with Dr. Barber. I was so thrilled to have it. I think he is such an articulate and enthusiastic communicator about our salvation, which is such an important and often misunderstood concept in Catholicism. This was just fantastic. Please check out the show notes to find out more about where you can find his book. It's currently sold out on Amazon, but it is available elsewhere and hopefully will be back in print on Amazon very shortly. Check out those show notes. Visit thecordialcatholic.com for more information about my writing and this podcast. I'm on Twitter at Cordial Catholic, on Facebook at The Cordial Catholic, where there's a vibrant community of people following this writing and this podcast. Send your feedback to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I'm really enjoying carrying on these important conversations with listeners after the podcast is over, and I respond to all emails. So thank you very much for engaging me in that way. And hey, if you like this podcast and want to financially support it, I appreciate that too. Check out patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Even one or two dollars a month helps to keep this podcast financially sustainable. It's 100% listener supported. There are no ads and it's not my full-time job either. So any even small donation really helps out. And thank you to those who are already donating and who are praying and fasting for the show as well. I'm so grateful for you guys, and I'm so blessed by God to be able to do this in the first place. Review the podcast if you can, like the podcast if you can, and subscribe to it wherever you find it. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next week. God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.